In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this is our last class uh, and the last of the sacraments. Tonight we're talking about the anointing of the sick. Um, and I'll try to wrap things up, put things in perspective for the whole course here. Uh, but the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, um, it used to be called extreme unction. And uh, the, the reason for the name, uh, the, the Latin in extremis, uh, it's in extreme physical disability with the likelihood of dying. That was the original uh, view of the sacrament. Um, one of the sacraments of healing along with confession. And it was integral with uh, the last rites. Okay, but the, the church has seen it, um, it, it trying to encourage the sacrament a little bit more uh, in the sense that, you know, people who are um, maybe, well, they, anyone of the faithful, um, this, this is who can receive it. Probably the easiest uh, way to put it in context. Anyone of the faithful who begins to be dangerously ill due to sickness or age uh, before surgery, for example. Uh, and the sacrament can be repeated. It's not a one-time sacrament like uh, baptism or confirmation. All right, so tonight I want to look at the sacrament of anointing of the sick, but I also want to put it in context in terms of the relationship between sickness, suffering, and sin, okay? Uh, I really look at this as the sacrament of the suffering, you know, those who are suffering. That's what the sacrament's all about. Now, the minister for the sacrament is a bishop or priest. Deacons can't administer the sacrament of anointing um, because it can heal and forgive sins. Uh, it converts confers the Holy Spirit and it gives grace in those who are in that extreme suffering uh, or impending death it can give grace to strengthen them uh, to give peace and courage and to get them through those difficult times strength to face the temptations of discouragement and anguish in the face of death Okay, but again it can be for those who may encounter you know, a serious life threatening condition, um, you know, someone who has reached the age uh, where they are starting to get frail, or surgery, right? Because any surgery, you know, anytime they put you under, you know, that's the easy part. It's bringing you back from being put under. That's the, the tough part. So, I mean, it's a, it's a serious medical uh, procedure anytime that they, they knock you out. So, part of the sacrament um, can involve physical healing, right? The, that's kind of the question that often comes up. Why doesn't um, the sacrament of anointing heal everybody? You know, uh, I think somebody put that question to me last week, and I've heard it many times before. So we'll try to, try to put that into context tonight. Uh, but it can heal if, and this is the, the big caveat, if it would be conducive to one's salvation, Right? If it would be to your benefit 
for your own salvation, you know, for your faith, you know, the sacrament may heal. <clears throat> and there are instances where it does heal. Okay. Um, now, oftentimes we, we mention about the anointing of, or the, um, the last rites, oftentimes associated with the, the sacrament of anointing of the sick is both confession and the Holy Eucharist. And we'll talk more about that later. The Holy Eucharist, they have a special name for it, given at that time it's viaticum, right? It's food for the journey, you know, to carry you through. But I want to start tonight actually by talking about the, the one passage in the New Testament which uh, illustrates and kind of depicts the sacrament, and that's from the book of James. So if you'll flip to the book of James, it's right after Hebrews, almost to the end, you know, a little bit before the book of Revelation. Uh, after James, you got 1 and 2 Peter, and then the Johns, 1 two, through 3 John and Jude. So James chapter 5, starting in verse 13, verses 13 to 15. It's really just laid out here. You know, this is the actual depiction of the sacrament of anointing of the sick. All right, so James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Right? Notice the word, suffering. That's key. That's kind of the whole theme for tonight. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Right? The word for elders, the Greek word is presbyter. Right? That's the word where we get priest from. So you call the priest. And he'll pray over you and anoint you with oil. That's the, the material of the sacrament. Right? The anointing with the oil in the name of the Lord that's the form uh, and the prayer of the faith will save the sick man salvation here Okay, we're not talking about necessarily physical healing we're talking about the person's soul and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sin he will be forgiven so let me just briefly mention that we talked about uh, confession last time and confession is the ordinary means by which we have uh, mortal sins forgiven. Okay? Now, there's, you know, the anointing of the sick can forgive mortal sins, right? If this is a sudden thing, you don't have a chance to confess your sins. Um, oftentimes, confession comes before it, but say the person can't communicate, right? And they're, they're near death. Anointing can forgive mortal sins in that instance with the caveat that if the person recovers they would have to go to confession and go through the process of confessing their sins right so without any uh, um, constrictions here it will forgive venial sins as well all right now let's go into some of the old testament ideas behind this. And let's go to Adam, okay? Because where does all this come from? Suffering and death was not the plan God have had for us in the beginning. You know, we weren't supposed to die. We weren't supposed to suffer. But Adam and Eve, 
were tested, particularly Adam, okay, and they failed the test. And part of the ramifications of this, the outcome of this, we get in Genesis chapter 3. So God deals first with the serpent, and then with Eve, and then finally with Adam. All right, we won't concern ourselves with the serpent here, uh, but going to Eve, this is Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 16. Right? This is the fallout from the fall, okay? the, the curse of the fall, the effects of original sin, if you will. To the woman, he said, this is God speaking and passing judgment. Right? He had already passed judgment on the serpent. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken you are dust and to dust you shall return death right death enters in but also suffering for the woman it's suffering and childbearing for the man it's the work of his hands providing for his family they both suffer and they'll both die right because of original sin that's one of the things that Jesus came to alleviate, the curses of original sin. The thing is, he didn't come and die for us to take away our suffering and death. He did it to give our suffering and death meaning. Okay, So that's one of the things we're going to be looking at tonight, is to try to figure out how all that plays out. Now, moving forward, uh, you don't have to turn to this one, but just real quick, to kind of give uh, an overview of God's um, presence in the Old Testament. He's not just a God of judgment. Ancient Israel, they're out in the wilderness. They've left Egypt, you know, after being freed by Moses, uh, going through uh, the Red Sea. And they're out, and this is from chapter 15 in Exodus. They don't have water. They've gone three days without water. The three significant, right? Because of the Jesus' death, three days in the tomb. Uh, and they cry out and they plead with God, plead to Moses. And God responds, uh, this is Exodus chapter 15, uh, verse 26. God says, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give heed to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, right? In other words, if you keep covenant, remember, we've been talking this whole course about the covenant. A covenant forms a kinship bond. A covenant is established by an oath, and it forms a family relationship, specifically between God and man, God and Israel in this case, right? So he's saying, if you keep the covenant, built into the covenant are blessings and curses, right? So... He's saying, if you keep covenant, if you keep my statutes, I will put none of the diseases upon you which I put upon the Egyptians. Remember all the plagues. For I am the Lord, your healer. Right? God is the one who heals us. And so a little example of how that plays out in the Old Testament. 
And keep in context here the idea that in the Old Testament specifically, sickness and sinfulness went hand in hand. That was the general view that they held. It's not an absolute view, and we'll take a prime example of that with Job at the end. But sickness and sinfulness, you know, there was a relationship there. Uh, the biggest of these, which we're going to talk about right now, was leprosy. Okay, because a person would basically be rotting in front of you. And in ancient Israel, the one significant thing about leprosy is it cut you off from the people. It cut you off from worshiping God. You couldn't enter into the temple. You couldn't enter in and worship God, offer sacrifices. You were cut off from that. Okay, so essentially you were cut off from God. And what does sin do? It cuts us off from God. That's why leprosy is seen as this um, personification, if you will, of sinfulness. All right, so this is from 2 Kings with Elisha. This is Elijah's protege. Elijah is considered the greatest of the prophets. And Elisha um, was his, his protege, his heir to his uh, prophetic ministry. So this is from 2 Kings chapter 5. And he's dealing with this guy, Naaman. Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Syria. And it says that he was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Okay, so he's a foreigner. He's not an Israelite. But he hears about Elisha, and he goes to him, and he's a leper, and he's looking for healing. Uh, and so he goes, he asks, he sends uh, people to Elisha because, you know, because he's a leper, he's not used to seeing people face to face because leprosy is very contagious, right? So he sends people, gets word to Elisha, and Elisha responds back in verse 10. This is chapter 5, verse 10 of Second Kings. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. So even in the Old Testament, we have this use of the material world, okay? Use of matter, stuff, to heal. And Jesus is going to carry that on. When he heals, he's going to take, you know, he'll spit and form mud and rub it in people's eyes. He'll touch lepers. You know, his healing ministry is very physical. It, it's not just, you know, him saying a word or, you know, just willing something through his spirit. He uses the material world. And just like that in the Old Testament, that's how it happens as well. So Elisha tells him to go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Remember, seven is the number for the covenant. Seven is the word for to swear an oath, right? Which is in the Old Testament virtually synonymous with forming a covenant, right? So Elisha is appealing to God's covenant to uh, conduct this healing and washing, of course, prefigures baptism in all of this. So then we see the results in verse 14. This is Naaman. Uh, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. Okay, The Jordan is the gateway to the promised land. Again, symbolic here, right? 
The Israelites crossed the Red Sea into the wilderness. They wandered 40 years in the wilderness, which symbolizes our life here in this world. 40 years is a generation by Hebrew reckoning, right? So they were a generation in the wilderness wandering around, and then at the end of that generation, they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. Just like we will, were baptized, you know, crossing the Red Sea. We're in this life for a generation, the wandering in the wilderness. This is not our home, right? Our true home is in heaven. But one day we will cross over the Jordan into the promised land. So Naaman is washing in the Jordan seven times, the covenant. Uh, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. So he's grateful. He goes back. He acknowledges God as the true God. Okay. So enough of the Old Testament because there's a lot going on in the New Testament. Let's look at uh, some examples of Jesus' own ministry and how he deals with healing and um, the ideas behind it. So let's flip over to Matthew chapter 8. We'll be in Matthew here just a little bit. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse, and we'll start in verse 1. And there's a couple episodes here of healing. So this is Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Okay. Make me clean. That. That's interesting language here. He's showing a lot of faith, this leper, right? Because he's not asking, Lord, if you will, you can heal me, okay? Or, Lord, if you will, you can forgive my sins. The language he uses is, you can make me clean. That is specific language in the Jewish understanding. Why would you need to be clean? And he doesn't mean physically clean. He means ritually clean. Because what we said before, if you have leprosy, what does that keep you from doing? It keeps you from going to the temple and worshiping God. This guy wants to worship God in the worst possible way. He goes to Jesus so that he can be made clean to worship God, to go to the temple. That's his priority. If you will, you can make me clean. Verse 3, and he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer to the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to the people. Right. So he gives him the command to go and fulfill the Old Testament requirements to be ritually clean, to be able to be restored to communion with ancient Israel, and to be able to worship in the temple. Okay? Then we move on. That's the Jew, now the Gentile, right? We have a contrast here. Verse 5. As he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, begging him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home in terrible distress. Okay, and again, the, the 
metaphor of sinfulness, right? The servant is sick, he's paralyzed, he can't move, he can't even go out to seek healing. When we are in sin, our soul is paralyzed. We can't even go and worship God. We, we don't even have the ability to, to heal ourselves, right? We're paralyzed in sinfulness. So this guy goes on his servant's behalf and he says, please heal him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home in terrible distress. And he said to him, that's Jesus, uh, I will come and heal him, right? Verse 8, but the centurion answered, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. We all hear that. That's the words from Mass, right? Verse 9, for I am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard him, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Their men will weep and gnash their teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment couple of things here. Faith. The reason Jesus is doing all these healings, well, a couple of reasons. One, he wants to give a message and, and explain how God views sinfulness and his desire to heal our souls, right? But he's also trying to evoke faith. And so this is becomes one of the requirements. Jesus will not heal if there is not faith on the part, right? He didn't come and just heal everybody. There's many people Jesus didn't heal. But he healed and evoked faith out of people. He drew faith out of them, right? And this is a prime example of that. And one other thing, remember what we said about the covenant. It forms kinship bonds. We become sons and daughters of God. Right? This is an important point, because what does he say here? While the sons of the kingdom, this is the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about the kingdom, the church. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, that's his language for hell. Okay, So just because you enter into the covenant doesn't mean you're going to stay in the covenant. covenant. That was one of the dangers of ancient Israel. They figured because they were in the covenant, they had it made in the shade. You know, they didn't have to worry about anything. They, you know, they were going to heaven. You know, the, the modern um, parallel to that is once saved, always saved, right? No, Jesus says even the sons are in danger of going to hell if you don't keep covenant. That much is consistent Old Testament to New Testament. You have to keep covenant. The covenant bears blessings and curses. Okay? But God will give us the grace to keep the covenant in the new covenant times. And then one last one here, verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and served him. 
Now, Fulton Sheen said, this is the reason that Peter denied Jesus three times, because he healed his mother-in-law. <laughs> that was Fulton Sheen who said that. <laughs> so he healed her. That evening they brought to him many who were possessed with demons, and he cast out the spirit. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. Right? That's from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Okay, it's a reminder that Jesus is not coming to just heal everybody. He's coming to bear the, the significance and the weight of our sinfulness. Right? He took our infirmities and bore our diseases of the soul. Okay? He's going to bear them and bring them to the cross. So he didn't heal everyone, and he came to give us an example and to give our sufferings meaning. That's why, you know, he says, and Luke adds the word daily, he says in the Gospels, take up your cross, Luke says daily, and follow me. Right? What's the cross? It's the means of capital punishment in ancient Rome. Right? It evokes suffering. It is the the quintessential form of suffering. Right? So we're to take up our own cross because we're followers of Christ. We're to be like him. But Jesus didn't just die. He rose and was glorified. And so we will follow after him if we view it through the eyes of faith. So let's take a look at what um, Paul has to say about this in the book of Romans. This idea of suffering and about the idea of being a Christian and suffering, specifically the idea of sonship, okay? Again, being part of the covenant. This is uh, from Romans chapter 8. So if you flip over to Romans chapter 8, this is the chapter that deals with the Holy Spirit, okay? Uh, Chapter 6 is all about baptism. Chapter 7 deals with what's left after baptism, how we still have concupiscence. We still have this tendency to sin, right? Well, how do we get out of that? How do we deal with that? And that's what the chapter 8 answers. It's through the Holy Spirit. So I want to start in chapter 8, verse 14. Just three verses from this, but they're three very important verses because Paul gets to the heart of the matter. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Okay, we're in the family. We are in the covenant with God. We're sons and daughters of God. Okay, it's the Holy Spirit that's been given to us that makes us sons and daughters of God. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, important word, provided, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're 
We're sons and daughters of God, provided we suffer with him. But we won't stay in our sufferings. We will be healed eventually. Just as Jesus rose, we will rise and we will be glorified just as Jesus was glorified. So I want to take this to the next level here and look at the book of Hebrews. In terms of Jesus, his coming as the Son of God and his suffering. So keep going to the right to the book of Hebrews. This is in chapter 2. Starting in verse 9. Hebrews, remember, we talked a lot about the book of Hebrews when we were talking about Christ, his priesthood. You know, how he came as a high priest to offer the sacrifice which forgives our sins. But in that capacity, it highlights the, the humanness of him. You know, he is truly man and truly God. So this is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Remember, he's the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? But he's talking about the Incarnation. He took on human flesh. Weak human flesh. Right? So for a little while he was made lower than the angels. In the sense of his humanity. But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. That's weird, isn't it? He was crowned with glory and honor because of suffering and death. Remember the curse of Adam. Adam was to suffer and he was to die. Remember when we read that from Genesis chapter 3? That was the result of original sin. He was to die. Well, this is like spiritual jujitsu, where Jesus uses the power of death itself to destroy death, right? He overcomes death by taking on human flesh and doing what God in his nature couldn't do by himself. God cannot die, right? It's, it's unthinkable that God could die. But Jesus, taking on a human nature, found a way. Right? Through his humanity, he could die and he could defeat death. So that is his crowning glory. So for a little while, he's made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the pioneer of their suffering perfect through suffering. Right? It's, it's a strange idea talking about Jesus being perfected. Right? The, the word teleos is the Greek word. It has the idea of perfection, but in the sense of achieving an end, you know, achieving a goal. Right? So the goal of Jesus coming as man was to taste death for everyone. Right? And in that way, he is perfected in his humanity in the sense that he fulfills the curse that Adam received. Now, the flip side of this is, you know, why death for Adam? Okay, what was it 
why did Adam have to die after, you know, the, the original sin? God warned him he would die, right? So if you just flip over to the, the next page, further down in chapter 2, verse 14, we kind of get the answer here. And the reference here is, is pointing back to Adam. This is chapter 2 in Hebrews, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He's talking about Jesus and the fact that he is God's son and we become sons and daughters through him, right? And we all share the same flesh. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. The devil has been given the power of death. God did not create death. Okay, that was not his, his uh, doing. Verse 15, so he has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. Do you get that? Through fear of death. Adam, well, actually Eve was confronted by the devil to eat the forbidden fruit, right? The devil didn't go to Adam. He went to Eve, you know, and said, you know, if you eat this, you won't die. You know, there's an implied threat there. And Adam, where was he? He was right there, but he didn't say anything, right? Because he was afraid. Okay, we get a real contrast to what Adam's failures were by looking at the new Adam, Jesus, right? They both go to a garden, right? Adam goes to the garden and he caves in, he sins. But Jesus bears our sufferings, right? He faces down the devil and he dies because of it, right? He goes to the tree. The, all the ancient fathers looked at the cross as the tree of life. Remember, there were two trees in ancient, uh, in the garden. You know, it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of life as well. And the devil got them to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, not the tree of life. Right? Jesus goes to the tree of life. But he dies. Right? He does what Adam should have done. Right? He faces death and dies. And who does he die for? He dies for his bride, the church. Right? That's why, you know, he saw on the cross, the centurion stabs him through the heart. And what comes out? Blood and water, signifying the church, the blood of the Eucharist, the water of baptism. Right? What came from Adam's side? Eve, his bride. What came from Jesus' side? His bride, the church. But Jesus died for his bride. Adam didn't. Why? It says here, fear of death. Right? And we always talk about pride, and that's part of it, too. You know, he thought, you know, I shouldn't have to die. There's pride in the motivation, but fear was part of that motivation as well. Right? Because we, nobody wants to die. Well, what's the, the problem with dying? It's suffering. Nobody wants to suffer. Okay? That's the real heart of this, suffering. One last thing from Hebrews before we move on. Flip over to chapter 5. 
verse 7. And we see Jesus here in the garden. Okay? It's the only possible explanation for how they describe Jesus in this verse. Chapter 5, verse 7 of Hebrews. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard for his godly fear. Right? Jesus feared God more than he feared death and suffering. Right? And where does he offer loud cries and tears? You know, in the garden. He sweats blood. It comes to that point, which is a real medical condition, they tell us. Right? You, you get to that level of stress and you can actually perspire blood. And he was hurt for his godly fear. But God didn't keep him from dying, did he? No. Right? But he did save him from death because he was raised up and glorified. Verse 8. Although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So it's through his suffering that he is perfected. Remember we said that word for perfection has the idea of completing a goal, of achieving an end. Okay, So he completes the goal, achieves an end, and sets the example for all of us sons and daughters. He is the son, and like Luke says, you know, we are to take up our cross daily and follow him. Now, suffering, though, that's the, the perplexing thing out of all of this. Why do we have to suffer? And we all do. Okay? You know, it's, it seems like we should try to avoid suffering. Paul has an interesting take on this. If you flip back, go backwards to the book of Colossians, there's a really interesting passage here that um, everybody should know. I mean, it's, it's just a few verses here, but it really gets to the heart of this. And it's real Catholic in its understanding. You know, what have Catholic moms always used to say to us? I know my mom used to say it all the time. What do we do when something bad's going on? Offer it up. Offer it up, right? Well, this is the passage of offer it up. Okay, this is Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. And it's such strange language when you look at it. This is Paul, and Paul, you know, he suffered more than anybody. Um, in, in Corinthians, he talks about, you know, how many times he's been beat, you know, uh, shipwrecked, stoned even, where they tried to kill him by stoning and he survived, you know, which in itself is unheard of. Uh, all these different occasions. And then he talks about God giving him a thorn in the side. We don't know what it is, but it's something that he really suffered for. And he prays three times that God would take it from him. But God doesn't take it from him. He says, my strength is sufficient for you because power is made perfect in weakness. Right? The only way to understand that is through the cross. Power is made perfect through weakness. You know, Jesus was never more weak than he was hanging on the cross, but that was the very point of his power through his humanity. 
where he redeemed us. So back to Colossians. This is Paul. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. How many of you rejoice in your sufferings? You know, we don't rejoice. We want to get out of them. But he's understanding this through the eyes of faith. Okay. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's the key part. And in my flesh, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the divine office. Did Christ's sacrifice lack something? I thought he died for the whole world. Well, yes, he did, right? But we have to receive it. He gives us this great gift, you know, but if it's Christmas, somebody gives you a gift that's nicely wrapped up, and you don't open the package, do you really get the gift? No. We have to receive it. Right? So this, we play a part. So this was lacking in Paul. In, in what sense? No, no, no. In the sense of the body of Christ. You look at the language here. In my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That is the church. Right? He is the head of the church, and we are his body. So the missing component is in us. In that sense, yeah, you're right. right? But it's, it's all of us, not just Paul. Yeah. Um, it's up to us to cooperate with Christ's suffering, to unite our sufferings with the cross for others. Right? That's the whole point here. It's for the church. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Right? We offer our sufferings for one another. You know, this is the antithesis of you know, Cain and Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, yeah, you are. We're in this together. You know, we're part of the same um, totality of humanity. Nobody's here alone. Right? We're all in this together. And even Christ. He's part of the human race. Yes? So I get it, but I kind of don't get it. How would you explain that to a Protestant who says, hey, Jesus died, that's it. That has anything to do with what you do. Well, I mean, Paul makes it quite clear, and this is a good passage to go to. You know, it's not just it. You know, we have something to do. He commanded us to do things. We're to spread the gospel. So it's not just it. You know, and Paul himself said, stop judging. You know, even, and, and the judging that he was talking about is talking about salvation, not the other way, going to hell, but both apply, right? He says, I don't even judge myself. That's what Paul said about himself, you know. That's not for us to decide. We don't know who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. So a Protestant mom would be saying, offer up that suffering. Maybe there are certain branches, you know, high church Anglicans who might do that. I don't know. But it's not a typical thing. Yeah. You're, you're probably not going to see uh, Southern Baptists, for example, you know, yeah, pulling that line. I mean, they'll pray for each other. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And they've they've got part of the answer here. They just... You know, I don't think they 
fully connect the dots here. You know, um, the Catholic Church's understanding about suffering here, I think, is is the most in line with what the Lord had in mind. You know, He died not to take away our sufferings, but to give it meaning. In some sense, yeah, yeah, and right, yeah, and, and it may be a matter of emphasis in terms of that. Yeah, they focus on the resurrection, you know, um, but it's always dangerous territory to try to categorize all Protestants because they come in all shapes and sizes, right? You know, there's so many different demo- denominations. You say one thing about one, it's going to be the opposite in another, which is part of the problem in itself. Right, the disunity. Yeah, but what did Paul say to the Corinthians? I shall know nothing amongst you except Christ crucified. Right? That's how Paul taught. He taught about Jesus on the cross. Not, you know, I mean, he talked about the resurrection, certainly, but that was his emphasis. Oh, you would ask for that, right? It's from Coloss- or, uh, Corinthians. I believe it's 1 Corinthians. Um, pretty sure it's 1 Corinthians. Right down here. Is it 2 2, I think? Yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. Haha, <laughs> found it. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it's interesting who he's talking to because the Corinthians were a really wealthy society, um, very cosmopolitan. I mean, in the ancient world, they were a lot like, you know, maybe New York City, you know, Uh, very wealthy, uh, big uh, trade community, lots of vices, you know, and so... Paul had all sorts of problems. That's why he ended up having to write two letters to say, hey, get your act together, you know. And so he focuses on Jesus on the cross to get through to them because these people already have it nice and cushy, you know. He wanted to show suffering to them, especially the Lord's suffering. Okay. Now, I want to kind of close this whole discussion by going back to the Old Testament to this quintessential suffering guy, Job. Right? Job was a good man. As about as faithful as you can get in the Old Testament. Okay? And we get this, you know, sort of a morality play here with God arguing with the devil and, you know, Basically says, you know, the devil saying, you know, you know, give me a little chance with Job and he'll be unfaithful. The only reason he's faithful is because of all the good stuff he's got, right? And God says, no, he's faithful. Watch, you know, and he takes away everything from him. And through all of this, Job keeps firing question and question after question to God, but he stays faithful. No matter what, he stays faithful. Right? Then we get to the very end. This is before the Psalms, right before the Psalms. Job verse 42, or chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. This is the climax. This is 
the answer that Job gets, which finally satisfies him, right? God never gives him a good direct answer to the question about suffering. But Job gets to the point where he says, okay, I'm satisfied, right? Job chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you declare to me, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. This is Job's final answer here. He's talking about God. I've heard of, of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He sees God, and that's all the answer he needs. Right? He, if God had gave him a direct answer, Job would have come up with 10 more. Right? And if God answered those 10, he would have come up with 10 more, because that's the nature of people. You know, think about a hardened atheist. It doesn't matter what you say to them or prove to them. If they have hardened their heart against God, no proof will be possible for them. Right? The answer is to actually see God and experience him. So I want to read a little bit from uh, a particular book. This is uh, Professor Peter Kraft. He's a philosophy professor from Boston College. Amazing guy. Any book that he writes, it's worth reading. Uh, but he had this little book about three of the three books that he calls of philosophy that are actually in the Bible, right? Uh, it's on Ecclesiastes, you know, Vanity of Vanities, the Book of Job, uh, Life as Suffering, and then the Song of Songs, Life as Love. But I want to read you a little bit of how he kind of sums up Job's response to God. This is worth reading a little bit um, extensively here. So let me read you just a couple of paragraphs. And he starts out with a quote, you know, the quote we just read. I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. This is the climax of Job. This is the most important verse in the book. This explains everything that happened, why God brought Job through the whole dung heap to this end. This is the end of life, the meaning of life, the purpose of life. This is the solution to the problem of evil and the solution to the problem of the conflict between faith and experience and the solution to the problem of the meaning of life and the solution of the problem of my identity and the solution to the problem of God, of who God is for me. This is the answer to everything. No one, not even Job, can ever be dissatisfied with this answer. No one will have any more questions once he sees this answer. No one will ever feel let down, cheated, or disappointed with the answer, no matter how demanding and dissatisfied he is with everything else. This is the answer that fills the infinite, God-shaped vacuum that is in the human heart. This is God. The greatest question ever asked and the greatest answer ever given, in my opinion, are in an incident near the end of the life of St. Thomas Aquinas. Thomas was alone in the chapel, he thought, but his friend Reginald was watching and swore under oath that he saw and heard these events. 
and he was praying before the altar. A voice came from the mouth of Christ on the crucifix. You have written well of me, Thomas. What will you have as a reward? It was the same question with which Jesus began his public ministry in John's gospel. The great question, what do you want? From John 1, 38. And the equally great answer Thomas gave to God, the answer that puts a lump in my throat and a bird in my heart every time I say it was, only yourself, Lord. The theologian who found thousands of answers, more answers and more adequate answers than any other theologian in history, wants only one thing, the one thing needful that Mary wanted and Jesus wanted Martha to want, himself. That is why even Job was satisfied. He did not get what he thought he wanted, but he got what he really wanted. He did not get what his head and his consciousness thought they wanted, but he got what his heart and his deep unconscious knew they wanted, the thing we all want. We cannot help it. God made us that way. Only one key fits that lock. Only one Romeo satisfies that Juliet. Deep calls unto deep. Only infinity can marry infinity. Just as no animal was adequate for Adam, no creature is adequate for the human heart and a fortiori no concept. Concepts are pictures, and men cannot marry pictures, though many of us try and relate more to the picture we have in our mind of what we dream our spouse or friend should be than to the real other who bursts the bonds of all pictures. Job is satisfied because all life is courtship, and now he finally gets married. The beatific vision that awaits all believers in heaven is granted to Job for a moment on earth. So St. Augustine, in his confession, said, Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Right? That's the longing of the human heart. But the thing is, we see God in Jesus. Right? God was the invisible God, right? the one who you couldn't depict by pictures in the Old Testament. But Jesus put a face to God, right? so we can see him. And in the sacraments, we do see him. We encounter Jesus in all of the sacraments, most specifically in the Blessed Eucharist. Right? We see God through the eyes of faith in these physical manifestations. We see him through the sacraments which in essence, as we said in the very beginning of this, are the prolongation of the incarnation, most especially the Eucharist. Right? So the Catechism talks about the sacraments as kind of bookends to each end of our life. We have the sacraments of initiation in the beginning where baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist, where we enter the life of Christ. And at the end of our life, we have a complementary three sacraments which, you know, by God's grace, we can receive at the very end, which are the sacraments of confession, anointing of the sick, and the Eucharist, the viaticum, the food for the journey. And it completes our conformity to the death and resurrection of Christ. In each of the sacraments, we encounter Christ in an intimate way. Right? So I hope I've gotten that through through this course about the sacraments.
You know, each of them is an intimate encounter with Jesus. So, that's all I have. Do you have any questions? Very good, Joe. Well, thanks. Um, Let's go ahead and end with a prayer then. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, holy is your name and renowned your compassion, cherished by every generation. Hear our evening prayer and let us sing your praise and proclaim your greatness forever. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.